Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This episode, we're heading to a unique part of the Golden State where the desert meets the mountains. Inyo County is in the heart of the Eastern Sierra, where geological wonders, cinematic landscapes, and close-knit communities beckon hikers, filmmakers, and history buffs. Speaking of history, we'll start off with Brent Underwood, who owns an actual California ghost town, the Cerro Gordo Mines. Obviously, there's no playbook for restoring an abandoned mining town. It's a lot of learning on the fly. It's a lot of stressful days, logistical challenges, but I love it. After that, we'll get an epic film history lesson from Bob Sigmund, executive director of the Museum of Western Film History in Lone Pine. The sun going from east to west over Owens Valley provided just a unique opportunity for filmmakers, not only to have the landscape, but to have variable light, whether they were shooting north, east, south, or west. But before we ride off into the sunset, we'll stop in Bishop, where distilling duo Dave and Brittany Holman share the secret to making a great spirit. We're at the foothills of the Sierras. Literally all of our water is snowmelt right out of the mountains. I mean, we use city water at the distillery, and the water is so perfect, we don't have to alter it, filter it, or basically do anything to it all. And that's very rare in the alcohol industry. That's all coming up on California Now. My next guest is an entrepreneur on a mission to unearth the hidden treasures of a gold rush era mining town. Brent Underwood is the owner of Cerro Gordo, a collection of abandoned 19th century mines in the Inyo Mountains. He spends his days living in and exploring the historic ghost town on the outskirts of Death Valley, working to turn it into a new destination for visitors. Brent, welcome to California Now. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You know, you're an entrepreneur, an author, and social media star. Tell us more about yourself. I mean, what's your origin story? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I grew up in Florida and for a long time growing up, I lived with my grandfather who used to love Gunsmoke, you know, the old TV show. And so growing up, that allure of the American West was always there. And I think over time, I kind of slowly made my way West. I went to school on the East Coast. Then I lived in Austin, Texas for a while where I had a bed and breakfast that was in an old Victorian mansion from the 1800s. And then Slowly, I made my way to California, where I now live for the past four years full-time at Cerro Gordo, which is, as you mentioned, an abandoned mining town back from the early 1800s. So how did you actually end up owning <laughs> this abandoned mining town in Inyo County? When I was living in Austin, I, I had the bed and breakfast that was in a building from 1871. And so I really love this idea of like history and hospitality. You know, I think that it's one thing to go to a town, but it's another thing to go to a town, get to experience a little bit about the history there. It just feels like you're more part of that area. And so as the Ben Breakfast was doing better, um, a friend of mine texted me a link to this listing that said, you know, own your own ghost town. <laughs> and uh, he said it more as a joke. I think he thought, hey, this would be something that might be a Brent's alley. And he said something like, you know, this might be your next project. I was in love. You know, I just started reading more and more about the town. There's such a rich history here. It just seemed like such a large canvas to do something really cool in that history and hospitality world. And that was in 2018. And so bought the place in July of 2018, um, moved up here full time in March of 2020, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I've been living here ever since. So tell us, what's a typical day in the life of an abandoned gold rush mine owner? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it ch it's changed over the time. You know, at first, when I first moved up here, it was a very solo thing. You know, I was here 
mainly just to hunker down and socially distance, I think. Um, but these days, a typical day would be waking up. It's cold right now, and we don't have any central heat, obviously. So it's getting the wood burning stove going, trying to get warm enough to kind of get after the day, then checking in with all the different projects we have going on. You know, we are trying to renovate this and make it into a place for people to come and stay. And so at the moment, we're rebuilding a hotel here. We're working on uh, renovating a recording studio out of one of the old cabins. Then doing my day job, I still have to work a day job to kind of pay for all of this. And so I, I work online. And so I kind of do that for a couple hours. And then in an ideal world, if everything goes right, I try to go on some of a little adventure towards the end of the day, whether that's a hike or going out in the abandoned mines to explore and try to find some artifacts or just going for a dirt bike ride. That's That's kind of the ideal day for me. At, at any point in the last few years, did you wonder like, what the heck did I get, get myself into here? Oh yeah. At least, at least once or twice a month. Obviously there's no playbook for restoring an abandoned mining town, especially one in the middle of nowhere with no running water. And so it's a lot of learning on the fly. It's a lot of stressful days, logistical challenges, but I love it. You know, it's probably the most interesting and fulfilling thing that I've ever done. And so I've found that the last four years has been amazing up here. And you've posted uh, videos of you doing some pretty daring stuff, like going down into the abandoned mines. What's it like exploring down there? I mean, have you ever found anything cool? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think the town is a mining town after all. And I think for the first few years that I was here, I was so fascinated with the buildings themselves, you know, the stories of the buildings, what's above ground. But then there's 30 miles of mines underneath the town, which is insane. Um, You know, the main mine shaft here goes 900 feet straight down. And so the reason that all of these buildings exist on the surface is just for what was happening down there. And so for me, somebody that loves history, I thought, you know, to fully understand what was happening above ground, I had to kind of get underground and understand what was going on down there. These days, it's very peaceful, I find it, when I go to explore. It's a place where your phone obviously doesn't work, so nobody is uh, bothering you. You know, there's not a lot of outside things. And sometimes it's so stressful being there, you have to just focus on basically not dying that um, you kind of get this tunnel vision, which I like. I think flow state is what some of the athletes call it, but it's just like a world where everything exists just in front of you, which is a very nice feeling. And I think over time, I've tried to go to all of the accessible levels to document them. I typically either make a video. I've recently gotten into 3D mapping the levels as, as well, which I think is really interesting, You know, trying to preserve them for the future generations. But yeah, I find a lot of cool stuff. You know, some of the, some of the stuff is the sexier stuff we'll call it, like old Levi jeans are kind of every abandoned mine explorer's dream because um, the original blue jeans as we know them was created for California silver miners by Levi Strauss company. And so if it's an old silver or gold mine from let's say the 1860s to the 1880s, and if there were workers there, they're probably wearing Levi's. And those Levi's were probably the original blue jeans as we know them. And so those jeans can be very valuable and interesting to collectors. Um, and so I'm not necessarily interested in them in the monetary value, but I think that like the story of it is interesting. And so for the first two years, I was just, like obsessed with finding Levi's. And I have found one pair now. Unfortunately, they were very, very torn up and, and shredded. But I know that they're out there now. And so the hunt continues for for the Levi's down there. Wow, that's pretty cool. So for someone who's never actually been in a mine like that, is there any life down there that you, do you hear things? Or do you hear like dripping water? Or Yeah, the, the mines are pretty dry here. Um, occasionally I'll see a bat or two. There's not a lot of wildlife down there beyond that because you have to figure that 
the only way to get into the Union Mine currently is to use this hoist. So essentially, imagine like an elevator that is has no sides on it that's suspended by a cable that slowly lowers you down into it. And then as you go down this 900-foot shaft, there's levels every 100 feet or so. Um, and it's so still that sometimes when you spend a long time down there, it's almost like auditorial hallucinations. You know, I, I've heard like crowds of people down there, you know, like clattering of like a cafe and stuff, which obviously wasn't down there. Um, and that only happens when I'm like down there for an extended period of time. I know that for, at first I was a guy living by myself in the middle of the mountain. So right, right. And, and in a ghost town, I might, yeah. I might add. Right. So, okay. Right. <laughs> going a little crazy was to be expected. Um, but this was fairly recently. So I don't think that was to, to say, but Hey, maybe it was the ghosts. Yeah. That's really creepy. Oh my gosh. So well, let's get into some of the history of Cerro Gordo. So when did it all begin? It was established as a mining town in 1865. Um, by two Mexican prospectors, Pablo Flores and his partner. And they were working kind of a small claim. And so typically with a town like this, it would be discovered by walking up a, a wash. So like, you know, a gully in the side of the mountain where they would walk up and they were looking for float. And so float is ore that's sitting on the surface. And so the ore here was primarily galena, which is silver with a little bit of lead in it. So these rocks would have been very heavy. And so Pablo Flores and his partner would have been walking up this wash, picking up the rocks till they found a really heavy one, and then figuring, you know, there must be more above me. And so they'd walk up and walk up until there was no more heavy rocks. At that point, they would figure that the deposit of ore could either be to the left or right. And so they were up here working one of these surface deposits, which would have been the ore just right on the surface. And the ore that they were mining made its way over to Fort Independence, which is another um, town, now Independence, you know, just up 395 from, from Cerro Gordo. And a merchant there got a hold of this ore and he thought it was very high quality. You know, he came up, a guy named Victor Beaudry, and he just established the first general store here. You know, I think he was following that old saying that, you know, in a gold rush, sell pickaxes kind of thing. And so he established the first general store here. Um, a guy named Mortimer Belshaw came shortly thereafter. And he was from San Francisco. He was a mining engineer. And he's the one that really allowed this town to become a boom town. You know, he saw the ore. He saw how much they were pulling out just from the surface. He went back to San Francisco, raised a bunch of money, came back, invested a ton of money in the main mine here. He built, you know, the first refinery here. He built the main road to get to town. And so he, him and Beaudry, who owned the general store, kind of owned the entire town in the early 1860s to the early 1870s. Um, and the town kind of exploded, you know, at its peak, the reports I read said that Cerro Gordo had 4,000 people living in it. And I think what's interesting for me is at the same year that Cerro Gordo had 4,000 people living in it, Los Angeles had 6,500 people living in it. So just to put it into perspective, you know, they're almost equal trading partners more than what we think of today. And from my understanding, Cerro Gordo being so remote, they needed a lot of supplies. You know, they needed supplies for the mules, for the buildings, for everything like this. And the closest port city was Los Angeles. And so the demand of Cerro Gordo, you know, the demand of this town in the middle of nowhere forced Los Angeles to kind of like develop quicker. And so it's interesting to me these days that I would say the majority of people around the world know of Los Angeles, but almost nobody has heard of Cerro Gordo. And that's kind of one of my things I try to rectify, I guess, over my time being here. So when and how did Cerro Gordo become a ghost town? The silver boom lasted until the late 1800s. So about by 1890, the kind of bust had begun. You know, there was no more ore being found. Uh, other big strikes had happened in the area. A lot of the miners were packing up and leaving. And so by 1900, it was pretty much, you know, its first iteration of a ghost town, a little skeleton crew working here. 
And then in 1910, a guy named L.D. Gordon came up and L.D. discovered that while everybody was paying attention to the silver, nobody's paying attention to the zinc. And so he started mining zinc. And so from about 1910 to 1940, it was one of America's largest producers of zinc. And so for a mine, it had an active life from about 1865 to about 1945, which is a very long time for a mine to have an active life. And so after that, again, when I kind of dwindled down, um, from my understanding, there was a company here trying to make it work and they had a caretaker in place. After the company went bankrupt, in lieu of back wages to this caretaker, they just gave him the town. It kind of passed between people since then. And then, like I said, in 2018, I kind of took over. So you've written a book about your experience exploring and reviving Cerro Gordo called Ghost Town Living. It's coming out in uh, 2024, right? So what can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's been fun. You know, I think there's been a lot of lessons about living over here the last four years. Uh, there's been a lot of understanding of the history here as well. And so in the book, I kind of dive into things that have happened here over the last four years, living here full time, you know, weaving in the history of the town, weaving in kind of the lessons that I've learned through those experiences and the history of the people here before. And it's been fun. You know, I think that obviously living in the middle of nowhere with a lot of time in your hands is a great opportunity to, to write. And so this is the first book I've really written and I'm, I'm really proud of it. You know, I have a general sense of where the town is, but how exactly does one get to Cerro Gordo? We're about three and a half hours outside of Los Angeles along 395. We're kind of just before Mammoth. There's Bishop, then there's Independence, then there's Lone Pine if we're working right south. And then right before Lone Pine, off 190, there's a little town called Keeler, which is along the former shore of Owens Lake. And then eight miles up from Keeler is where Cerro Gordo is. We're right on the border of Death Valley National Park in the Inyo Mountain Range, um, right across from the Sierra Nevada. And as I mentioned before, like all the buildings can see Mount Whitney. So that's the the general vicinity of this place. You know, if someone were to come visit Cerro Gordo today, in addition to those amazing kind of vistas, what else could they see and do? A lot of the original buildings are still here, which I think is very cool. We probably have about 20 original buildings still here, ranging from the old general store to you know, the old assay office where they tested the quality of the minerals to the bunkhouse I mentioned to the hoist house, which is the main building with the main mine shaft that goes all the way down. And so we have tours available every day from nine to five there. It's free. There's no charge for any people to come up here and check it out. The old general store we've made into a museum. And so anything that I've found down in those mines that I'm exploring or that people have brought back now lives in the museum. And so people are welcome to come out here, you know, check out the museum, learn a little bit about history of Cerro Gordo, which I think ties in closely to the history of California and the surrounding area, um, and then take hikes around and just take in the the breathtaking natural beauty as well. You know, what are your ultimate goals for the town? I would love to get it to a place where people can come and stay overnight. I think it's, it's one thing to come and tour around the property for an hour or two, you know, to check out the scenery, but it's another thing to be here all day, you know, see the sun rise over Death Valley and then watch the sun set over Mount Whitney. It's just a really cool experience. And so I hope that the hotel that we're building this time next year is done, you know, that we're accepting people. There'll be a little bar and restaurant in it as well for people to come and get some snacks. Um, and I think long-term, I'd love to preserve all of the history that we have here, add to it, um, as well as introduce kind of some of those amenities to allow more people to experience the town in the way that I get experience it every day. So for people listening, say, say folks came to Cerro Gordo and spent, uh, you know, a good part of the day exploring the grounds. What should they do after that? I mean, do you have any recommendations for other things to explore in the area? Inyo County and 395 is just 
a gem. It's one of the most underappreciated areas that, I, that I've ever experienced because, you know, outside of Cerro Gordo, obviously you have Mount Whitney, which is a huge draw, but right in front of Mount Whitney, outside of Lone Pine, you have the Alabama Hills. And the Alabama Hills is where almost every Western back in the day was ever shot. And so I would say, yeah, if you, if you have a couple of days, come check out Cerro Gordo, check out Lone Pine, check out the Alabama Hills, make a trip up to Manzanar, take a trip down to the dry lake bed of Owens Lake. You know, the reason that Los Angeles is the town it is today is because of Owens Lake. What about local haunts, pardon the pun? Any bars or restaurants you like to direct people towards? Yeah, my favorite restaurant in Lone Pine by far is Merry-Go-Round. It's a Chinese restaurant in the middle of nowhere, but it is amazing. Um, Dan is the owner of it and his wife, and they just do in, literally the best Chinese food I've ever had in my life. What do you like to order there? Like, What, what would you recommend? Yeah, they have uh, a pepper, black pepper chicken that's really good. And then if you're vegetarian or vegan, they have um, a curry tofu that is just like the best curry tofu that I've ever had in my life. And so I would say <laughs> if I had one night in Lone Pine and uh, I would stay at the Dow Villa, the Dow Villa is a historic hotel from the early 1900s, right in the center of town, pretty much next door is going to be merry-go-round. So I would go over there, I'd get the black pepper chicken and I'd maybe get the curry tofu if you're vegan. And then I would cap out the night at Jake's. Jake's is... Uh, the only bar in town, and it is very cool. It's an old Western theme. There's a lot of names written all over the walls. You're probably going to run into some hikers that are going along the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, because that's kind of the stopover if you're going to Lone Pine. And if you do that, you're going to have a pretty good, pretty good Lone Pine night. Before we go, like, what message or experience do you hope visitors take away from their time spent there? Yeah, I hope that people just get a better glimpse into the American West. I think the American West is one that is obviously romanticized often. And I think that there are very interesting parts of the West, but it was also a difficult period of time. It was a difficult life. And I think here at Cerro Gordo in our museum, we try to show all aspects of that from you know, the Chinese miners that made up a large portion of the population here to you know, even before that, the Shoshone and the Paiute that were here before that. And just all of the history and struggle that went into developing some of these Western towns and how that spilled over into other towns. Like I mentioned before, the influence of Cerro Gordo on Los Angeles and how all of that kind of stems back to some of these mining camps, I think is very interesting and one that uh, I think people would get a lot of uh, context by understanding. Wow. Well, Brent, this has really been great. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Brent Underwood is the owner of the Cerro Gordo Mines. To find out more about Cerro Gordo's history and info on visiting the property, visit store.cerrogordomines.com. That's store.c-e-r-r-o-g-o-r-d-o-mines.com. This is California Now. Located only a few hours from both Southern and Northern California, Pismo Beach is the true classic California beach town, famous for its historic pier, miles of beautiful white sand beaches, outstanding accommodations, and a rich wine region minutes away. 
For more information and to book your stay, go to experiencepismobeach.com. That's experiencepismobeach.com to find out more and to book your stay. My next guest is Bob Sigman. He's the executive director of the Museum of Western Film History in Lone Pine. For 30 years, he's been working to highlight the rich Hollywood heritage of the Eastern Sierra region through the museum and its annual Lone Pine Film Festival. Bob, welcome to California Now. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Hear the wind blow, boys. Hear the wind blow. So, you know, Lone Pine and the Eastern Sierra are brimming with film history. More than 700 Westerns have been shot in the region. This new land of the West was a wild, unruly territory into which brave American pioneers moved in covered wagons on horseback. Why was it such a magnet for filmmakers? Well, in the early years, um, the early years of the 20s, you'd had people that were, of course, traveling by horseback Model T or some other way up towards the Eastern Sierra, basically on vacation. And once they saw the landscape, because it's all about the landscape, when they saw the landscape of the Eastern Sierra, particularly in the Lone Pine area, the Alabama Hills, as Hollywood started to develop and they were looking for locations to shoot, these people would say, you've got to go, you've got to go north up to the Eastern Sierra. And it became incredibly popular with uh, the first recognizable film for us in 1920, uh, The Roundup with Fatty Arbuckle is what we basically identify as the first film shot in uh, Alabama Hills, Eastern Sierra. Yeah, when you talk about the landscape, like describe it for pe- people who may not be familiar with it, or maybe they are familiar with it, but they don't realize it's the Eastern Sierra. So like describe the landscape that drew the people, that drew Hollywood there. The Lone Pine sits uh, at the base of Mount Whitney, the tallest mountain in the continental United States, 15,505 feet. And then Owens Valley below is uh, historically, geologically, about 10,000 feet. So it's the history of the geology of the area is very unique and attracts, on a separate basis, a lot of people interested in geology. The Alabama Hills, which are about 4,600 feet below Whitney, are, are a unique geological formation of rocks that have been pushed up in the earth hundreds of feet, and all of the dirt over the years is gone from them. So you have these huge rocks piled upon rocks, and you have mountains and valleys. And so, uh, and you have a unique, what they call the Valley of the Shadows, the sun going from east to west over Owens Valley, provided just a unique opportunity for filmmakers, not only to have the landscape, but to have variable light whether they were shooting north, east, south, or west. So it, it just provided a lot of flexibility to the creative minds behind, uh, behind filming. And while I'm gone, you dig, unless you want to feel something swift as an arrow. And I don't mean through the heart. What are some of the most famous Westerns made in Inyo County? Well, uh, John Wayne made 12 films there. Randolph Scott made 12 films Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, uh, Hopalong Cassidy, 
made 30 or 35 of his 50 films up in the Eastern Sierra. In fact, every major Western actor, writer, producer, and director has made a film in the Eastern Sierra. And of course, other than Westerns, it's attracted film noir, High Sierra, Bad Day at Black Rock, Star Wars, Star Trek episodes. And um, from a sci-fi point of view, Tremors was filmed there, the first Tremors. Basically, if you've seen any kind of like iconic Western movie, you've seen the area around Lone Pine. Really, and, and as recent as 2012, in terms of major films, you had Django Unchained um, with Quentin Tarantino filmed there. But these days, I practice a new profession. Bounty Hunter. All these locations uh, where these films were shot in the area, can people visit them? Like, can I go visit some of these places? Yes, and at the uh, at the museum website, museumwesternfilmhistory.org, you can go through the various menus. We have a lot of brochures uh, that people can pick up at the museum and then go out to do a, very, a tour themselves, self-guided tour. And then during the film festival, which is our, we just had the 33rd annual film festival, we run 28 tours, approximately 26 to 28 every year, where we take people with a guide and take them out with uh, experience being on the on location in Lone Pine and show them film clips and images of the landscape where they're standing. And a couple of the most well-known spots in Inyo County are the Alabama Hills and Lone Ranger Canyon. What's the story behind the canyon's name, Lone Ranger Canyon? It originally was called Ambush Canyon because in the 1938 Lone Ranger serial, which was, a, which was the first of Lone Ranger film, the Cavendish brothers are being chased by the Texas Rangers, and somehow they get backwards and the Rangers are in this ambush canyon and the Cavendish brothers are on the hillside and they start shooting them and they kill all of the eight Texas Rangers. So they're left for dead and Cavendish boys ride off. Tonto rides through on his way from somewhere and he sees the starts to bury the dead. But one Ranger is not dead. That's Ranger Reed. And so that becomes the Lone Ranger. And since many, many years ago, it's become Lone Ranger Canyon. I wanted to talk about Lone Pine as a town for a minute. What, what's the town like? Well, the town is, uh, has been 2,000 people for 50 years. I mean, the town has changed. It used to have multiple gas stations and ice cream parlors and things. But as, as uh, roads improved and people were able to get from Los Angeles to Tahoe and faster, they moved more quickly through the area. People coming to Lone Pine today are coming either for rock climbing, Mount Whitney, movie sites, uh, fishing. Uh, it's really a good portion of the people are coming because of the outdoor experience. It's also a central point to hop over to Death Valley or go up to sand dunes in Northern California, about an hour away. Uh, also, the Bristlecone Forest is an hour, 15 minutes away, the oldest trees in the world. So it's pretty much the basis for outdoor people. Tell us about your Western story. I mean, you kind of mentioned you were the president of Republic Pictures in the 90s uh, when you first set foot in Inyo County. What happened that first time you came to Lone Pine? 
I had moved to California in 93, um, and I came to Los Angeles in 94 to his presidency of Republic. And I took a, rented a motorhome and went on vacation and came out of Death Valley into Lone Pine, which I'm just a destination through on the way back home. And my daughter, who was about eight years old, went to the little store in the morning and came back a few minutes later. She, we were at a place called Boulder Creek RV Park. And she said, Daddy, the woman in there wants you to come in right now. I said, well, what do you mean she wants me to come in right now? She says, no, she said right now. I, I went in. I said, I mean, something happened with my daughter here. She said, do you know where you are? I said, I think I'm in Lone Pine. She said, look around you. And she had hundreds of posters from Republic Pictures and Westerns around the store. So she said, are you really the presidency of Republic? I said, I was before I left L.A. And so that started, that was ninety late 93 or 94, and that started my uh, going back and forth to Lone Pine, first to join their board, then ultimately to write a business plan to build the museum in 2005. And ultimately, after leaving Republic and moving back east, I went back from 2012 to 2019. I actually lived in Lone Pine and ran the museum and am presently running the museum from where I live in Roanoke, Virginia right now. Um, what do you love love about the town and the Eastern Sierra region in general? Like, what makes it so special? Landscape, landscape, landscape would be number one. Uh, the, the, if for those who've never been to the Eastern Sierra, uh, Inyo County has, I think, 10 or 12 of the 14,000 peak mountains in the United States, continental United States. So just being there is uh, really an experience. And then, of course, Lone Pine is a community of even 2,000 people. It's very family-oriented. People support the museum and and an opportunity after my corporate career to be able to have a museum almost as a palette to work on the legacy of preserving Western film has been a unique opportunity for me to be able to execute and carry out with a lot of help from a lot of people. Absolutely. What a passion project that you basically started, right? I mean, you created, you helped to create this museum. Yep, the festival started in 1990, so there was, of course, a, a foundation for many years of uh, the community's work to bring people to Lone Pine for the film festival. But uh, yes, it was an opportunity to start, to be there from the beginning. I didn't realize the film festival came before the museum, so talk a little bit about the origin of the festival and how and how you got involved with it in the first place. Sure, the local uh, local townspeople, and in, in, you know, they had been experiencing for uh, 30, 40 years, uh, these famous people coming to town. There are three primary hotels. The, the original Dow Hotel had been there, just celebrated 100 years, and that's where Hoppy spent his honeymoon night. And every major, again, writer, director always wanted to stay at the Dow. And so the owner of the Dow and a couple other local community people and a gentleman named Dave Holland, who was an advertising executive who fell in love with the Eastern Sierra, said, maybe if we paid tribute to some of these films, got Hollywood involved, we could help the community. Again, you're talking, you know, 1990, so the traffic was different and destinations different. And that's what came together. The first festival was the Sierra Film Festival, and that was called that for three years. And then in 1994, it became the Lone Pine Film Festival. Festival starts on Thursday night and goes Friday, Saturday, Sunday with panels and and then, of course, these tours, location tours. Sunday is Cowboy Church, for those who want to attend in the morning. And we're famous for our Main Street Parade, which takes people back 
to the days of small towns and parades with wagons and horses and convertible antique cars. Oh, wow. That sounds really great. Let's dive into the museum experience now. I mean, what can visitors expect to see when they walk through the front door of the museum? Well, it's been interesting. Since we built the museum, um, and it opened in 2005, about 30,000 people a year come through the museum, and about 70% of them come in, and the first thing they say is, wow, because they don't know what to expect. They've driven by, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, I've driven by here a hundred times, going north to ski or going south, etc. And I, I've been meaning to step in. And, and so the experience for them, um, you know, the Django wagon is on our main floor, a uh, tribute to uh, 101 Ranch is one of the early uh, ranches in Oklahoma where many of the silent film stars actually worked on the ranch, uh, then later went into film. And then uh, they have exhibits as tribute to Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and Randolph Scott. And as I mentioned, Star Wars and Tremors. And so it's 10,000 square feet and people can spend an hour to two hours to three hours in the museum. And it brings back a lot of memories to certainly people in their fifties and sixties who see memorabilia. They might see a a Roy Rogers cookie jar or a Hopalong Cassidy knife. And you can almost see the ex- experience of them remembering when their mom gave them or dad gave them that when they were a child or the cereal bowl that they ate uh, Lone Ranger cereal out of. What would you say are some of the most popular ones? Well, certainly, certainly the Django exhibit. Um, we have a room that's a tribute to Western TV. So all of the, the, the Western television we've been talking about, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, Lone Ranger, are all represented in that room with memorabilia and and uh, film clips and, and images of that period. We have a large exhibit for Roy Rogers. Uh, Randolph Scott, very popular. And then interesting enough, we uh, we have the uh, high, the car 1937 Plymouth from uh, Bogart's High Sierra was filmed in Lone Pine, and that sits in the a main room and and gets a lot of attention from people uh, who are fans of Humphrey Bogart. Oh, that's pretty cool. And then I, I think you also have something of uh, from Iron Man as well that I, I think also draws a lot of people stepping away a little bit from the Western, uh, you know, genre for a moment. Right. And the original Iron Man was shot in Lone Pine and uh, up in the Alabama Hills. And so people rec- know that scene where he stripped Robert uh, Downey Jr. stretches his arms out and uh, the Sierra's behind him and all the bombs go off. I humbly present the Jericho. That and uh, the worm, we have the original worm from Tremors uh, in our sci-fi area, also a big big attention getter. Very cool. You mentioned, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino coming to visit the museum, Roy Rogers. Who are, who are some of the other, like, famous Hollywood stars to, to visit Lone Pine in the museum? Well, over the years of the film festival, I mean, Ernie Borgnine, uh, one of my favorites, Gregory Peck, opportunity to sit and chat with Gregory Peck will always be an uh, ex- ex- exciting memory for me. Peggy Stewart, famous actress, just passed away a couple years ago. It's unfortunate, of course, so many have passed away. Today, William Wellman Jr. comes up. His father was a great director, and he still comes. Uh, J.D. Whitney, the son of uh, uh, William Whitney, always came up. It's just, you know, the list goes on and on. Again, it's all on our website. So, so Bob, you know, when 
people come to visit the museum, what should people do after their visit? I mean, do you have any tips for travelers coming up to Lone Pine? Sure. Well, a, a lot of people use the museum as a first stop coming into town. And once they experience the museum, some of them even change their plans because we do offer these brochures and self-guided uh, information to go up into the Alabama Hills. A good portion of them don't realize until they stop in the museum that the Alabama Hills exist above us, right behind us. And of course, Mount Whitney, which you can drive up to about 8,500 feet to a, a store up there, Whitney Portal Store. You know, we have some great restaurants, Alabama Hills Cafe, uh, has always been a great support of the museum, great place to eat, uh, Seasons Restaurant. It's it, Interesting enough, town has some some great restaurants to eat at and breakfast places. And, you know, for those that love old hardware stores, we have a gardener's hardware stores like Stepping Back in History. They, If you're looking for something, you'll find it there. And most people are really, mostly if they leave the museum, they, they're going to do something outdoors, though. So what would be your recommendation for somebody coming up, like to, to experience the outdoors of Lone Pine and the area around the town? Well, again, once you come into the museum, we can provide you with these guided brochures. It's a quick drive to go up to Lone Ranger Canyon or to go up to where Gunga Dean was filmed, a 1939, very popular film, of course, where the Alabama Hills were used as uh, as India. You can take with you this guide and you can it's easy to find this particular, let's say, space that you might stand in. And as you're looking out, you're seeing the natural landscape. And when you're looking at your pictures that come with the brochure, you're seeing what it looked like when it was in the film. You know, Bob, it's almost time to, to wrap up our chat here. But before you ride off into the sunset, how about a recommendation or two? Like which film or films shot in Inyo County should our listeners watch this weekend? Well, I think you got to go back to the Lone Ranger, the original Lone Ranger film has got to be one of the best uh, films, 1938 version, uh, serial shot in Lone Pine. And then, of course, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, if you haven't seen that, gives a lot of visibility to the Alabama Hills. Really great recommendations. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, appreciate it. Happy trails to all. Bob Sigmund is the executive director of the Museum of Western Film History in Lone Pine. You can check out the museum's wonderful exhibits as well as detailed information about the region online at museumofwesternfilmhistory.org. That's museumofwesternfilmhistory.org. This is California Now. Whatever happened to Randolph Scott has happened to the best of me. My next guests are a husband and wife distilling duo who quite literally embody the spirit, or spirits more accurately, of Bishop. Brittany and Dave Holman are the owners of the Owens Valley Distilling Company in Inyo County's only city, where they produce a variety of unique bottled spirits and cocktails. Brittany, David, welcome to California Now. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us about yourselves. You moved to Bishop from Chicago 17 years ago. Uh, what made you decide to come west and, and how did you end up in Bishop? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I was the typical urban commuter in Chicago for about 10 years and just was getting really tired of it. And uh, my new wife at the time and I were both passionate rock climbers. And one day we decided 
man, maybe we've had enough of Chicago. So we came out to Bishop, California on a climbing trip. It's really the only place in California other than Yosemite that I was familiar with. And we had a great time out here, a great climbing trip. Brittany absolutely fell in love with the town. And we immediately went home and started making plans to move out here. Yeah, we made a plan that we rented our house out where we were then living. And we said, okay, let's get a travel trailer. We'll go out to Bishop. We'll try it for a year. If it doesn't work out, then we can always go back home. Why is Bishop so well known for rock climbing? Oh, wow. Bishop is literally a climbing mecca now. I mean, you talk to any rock climber around the world, they will know Bishop, California. There's a variety of climbing for every type of climber out there, from the boulder, traditional climber, sport climbing. I mean, Bishop has it all. It's just a wonderful place to come enjoy the mountains and climb. So for somebody who's not a rock climber, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like when you talk about there's such a variety, can you kind of like delve into that a little bit? Sure. We've got everything from small little rocks that people climb called boulders, which is a very like athletic gymnastic style of climbing all the way to big wall Sierra mountain climbing, um, you know, where you'd be on the wall for multiple days and everything in between. So there's something for everybody if you're a rock climber. That sounds pretty amazing. Um, What else makes Bishop special? I mean, how would you describe the town to someone who's never been there before? The, the slogan goes that it's a small town with a big backyard, and that is like the best way to describe it, because it's not just the town of Bishop, it's the whole, um, it's the whole Eastern Sierra. So it's just a big playground, and the mountains, the scenery is just spectacular from town. Um, you have the White Mountains on one side, and you have the Sierra Nevada Mountains on the other. I mean, you're also, you're big enthusiasts of the outdoors in general. So what other outdoor activities do you enjoy and get to do frequently where you live there in Bishop, California? There are endless trails. So there's, um, I I love to run. So there's lots of uh, trail running that you can do, um, backpacking. Uh, The three main trailheads up Line Street, uh, Sabrina, South Lake, and North Lake, those are just like the gateways into the Sierra. And from there, you can do day hikes. If you're into running, you can do trail running, uh, multi-day backpack trips. Um, You can do some backcountry climbing there as well. And it's just like all four seasons, it's just beautiful. Of course, in winter, they're going to be snowed in. And there's something here for literally every type of sportsman. I mean, we're one of the best locations in the country for hand gliding, fly fishing, like Brittany said, running, climbing, uh, photography. I mean, if you love the outdoors, uh, regardless of what your fitness level is, you know, you, if you're just a, 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 you know, a car tourist trying to see some beautiful things or you're a hardcore athlete, there's just so much to do in this town. It's incredible. How did you end up getting into the distilling business? I mean, tell us the origin story of how Owens Valley Distilling Company came to be. That's a really good question. Um, I basically know two industries, the greater furniture industry and a little bit about alcohol. When I was a kid, my much older brother decided that uh, he was going to start making wine. And I was kind of already fascinated with fermentation, you know, whether it was bread or root beer, soda, whatever. When he started making wine, it was just this whole new introduction to another world. And once I got old enough, I kind of took off into making wine, making beer. And uh, so when we moved out here, we kind of pursued my original career of the greater furniture world. And then decided one day, you know what, we're tired of it. Let's do something else. Our very good friend, business partner, and the magic behind all of our spirits, Adam Floyd, was literally the first person that we met here on day one while we were rock climbing. And uh, we kind of became like best friends from there on out. 
And then uh, he uh, was a brewer in the beer industry for a long time. And then one day we decided, hey, basically, we're all going to get together and make this happen. And that's how it happened. It uh, took a few years to do, but we eventually got it off the ground. I, I hear the quality of the local water plays an important role in your distilling process. I mean, can, can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. I mean, we're at the foothills of the Sierras. Literally, all of our water is snowmelt right out of the mountains. Uh, if there's no snow, basically, we have no water. And the quality of our water here is perfect. I mean, we use city water at the distillery. And the water is so perfect, we don't have to alter it, filter it, or basically do anything to it all. And that's very rare in the alcohol industry. That's pretty amazing. It really is amazing. What about your spirits? I mean, what kind do you produce? We do eight spirits right now, uh, ranging from vodka, gin, three different styles of rum, a couple of whiskeys, moonshine. And occasionally we do, you know, specials. We do a collaboration quite often with a local brewery. They brew beer. It's Mountain Rambler Brewing Company. And then we'll take some of their amazing beer and distill it into a specialty spirit or whiskey. So we have a quite a variety of spirits available all the time. So what's your most popular spirit? Right now, our most popular spirit is our gin. We do sort of a contemporary style of gin where it's not real juniper forward like, say, a London dry gin would be. Uh, our gin is forward with notes of grapefruit and cardamom, so it's citrusy and spicy, and it's really taken off. And then I'd have to say followed by that would be uh, probably our whiskeys and our vodka. What do you base your vodka on? Interestingly enough, we don't use grain or potatoes. We use molasses as the base for our vodka. And the way that we do the fermentation, I think what makes all of our spirits unique is um, we focus on producing really interesting flavors by the way that we ferment the initial uh, wash that um, is like a beer before it's distilled into alcohol. So like our vodka, for example, we get these really unique flavors. Our vodka is best drunk straight. You don't need to blend it into a cocktail or put it on ice. You can just drink it neat. So what can visitors expect when they come for a tasting at the Owens Valley Distilling Company? Uh, be ready to be transformed into somewhere else other than Bishop. You have <laughs> a, a speakeasy kind of feel, warm and quaint in our, our tasting room. Friendly service for sure. And a big shout out to our employees for that as well right now. Um, but so very inviting. Brittany mentioned the speakeasy feel. We wanted to do something a little bit different than kind of the Western theme, which is common here in Bishop. So you could expect to see, it's a distillery, of course, so a lot of copper and whiskey barrels, exposed wooden beams, uh, a lot of hard surfaces like, uh, you know, art metal that was all welded by Adam Floyd, our distiller, who's an amazing welder as well, but then softened by things like fresh flowers and tapestries. So it's just this warm, quaint environment. And you also serve food at the distillery. What kinds of things can you order at Owens Valley? And, and how do you pair them with your spirits? So I'm from uh, the Chicagoland area, the south suburbs. We feature some like classic Chicago fare, uh, Chicago hot dog and Italian beef sandwich that people just love. I mean, you can't get anything like that around here. We also have rotating food vendors uh, Thursday through Saturday. And there's a variety. They're doing Asian fusion, um, hand-cut noodles, fried chicken sandwiches, wood-fired pizzas. So we have like a really nice variety, um, and especially just for the Bishop area, it brings some culinary uh, diversity to it. Brittany and I are really excited about the food truck scene here in Bishop, and we really wanted to do something to promote that. And some of the food trucks here, like uh, Uncle Sham, Claude Ripper with Dennis Lim, 
uh, Pinion Pizza are just a few of the amazing food trucks that we have here. We feel like, you know, people that are opening food trucks are really kind of up and coming, passionate chefs. And honestly, I feel like some of the best food in Bishop is parked in our parking lot sometimes. It's, it's really fun. So like, for example, you know, you say that you offer Italian beef sandwiches on the regular. What would you pair with that? You really couldn't go wrong. Um, we have a pretty good array of cocktails that we offer. For this month, we have a quintuple cranberry sour, which is like our number one cocktail for the two months that it's out. So uh, that one, and then also I'd say our Bishop Mule. It's If you like Moscow Mules, you would definitely like our Bishop Mule. Uh, it, we don't do ginger beer. We do organic agave, uh, fresh ginger for the beverage base, um, for the drink base of it. And it's topped with club soda and with our award-winning vodka. So you're saying that your most popular cocktail when it's around is that that cranberry sour. What do you, what, how, do, how do you make that? Oh, that one's a fun one. So um, we do fresh cranberries and cinnamon sticks um, to make a simple syrup. We use our quintuple rum, which is a rum that has a lot of like flavor profile to it, some like fruity spicy notes, and it just lends itself perfectly to this drink. And as well, it's balanced with lemon, orange, and lime juices. Oh, that sounds really good. Now, you know, Bishop is in a fairly remote part of the Eastern Sierra. When would you say is the best time to come for a visit? Well, it really is a year-round destination because like our weather here in Bishop really is quite mild year-round. There's something to do year-round and it really isn't that difficult to get to even though we really are quite remote. Thanks to United Airlines and the wonderful uh, Bishop Airport that we have here, we now have a connecting flight almost every day year round through United. So it is possible to actually fly right into Bishop now. Well, I was going to say just for example, like in the winter, we have a lot of outdoor seating. So in the summer, we have sunshades and misters uh, to cool you down. And then uh, this time of year, our heaters are up. And on a calm day like it is today in full sunshine, I mean, you can be outside and you want to go put on shorts and a t-shirt. It's, it's that pleasant. What's your favorite time of year there? I cannot pick a favorite time. I love them all. I mean, in in spring, you start getting super excited because, you know, the high country is going to open up, the snow's melting, uh, the wildflowers start coming out in early summertime. Uh, that is, that's pretty special. Um, I like to go up into the high country and see the whole transition from, you know, there's still patches of snow on the ground to then you see the wildflowers start to bloom. You see them at their peak and then you see everything kind of start going downhill that um, fall is approaching. You see the quaking aspens are just beautiful yellow shimmers. And then winter, of course, you kind of get like that feeling of, okay, like, you know, it's time to settle in and kind of hibernate. So you feel like you get a little bit of a break and no more running up there and kind of like you have that craze, like feeling like you got to suck up every minute that you can that's possible up there to just kind of settling down here, like in the valley and, and enjoying that. So Terius, we literally had this conversation, Brittany and I, last night, and we both agreed Neither one of us has a favorite season in Bishop. That sounds really amazing. So, you know, no matter what time you go, you're going to probably have a really nice experience. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, it sounds like the opportunities for hiking and outdoor activity are unparalleled around Bishop. So what are some of your favorite local hikes? Um, I mentioned the Sabrina, North Lake and South Lake trailheads. Um, So those yeah, are very convenient to get to. Uh, North Lake, I mean, you can... You can go as far as you want if you just feel like doing a day hike. I would definitely like highlight that one or like a multi-day backpacking trip. And seriously, you got to break out the maps. You got to get a guidebook. You have to look at what you're interested in. And 
the beauty, the granite cliffs and everything. Um, I mentioned all year round, like it, it is very beautiful. You know, people are, are at various levels, you know, of experience. So where should visitors go if they're experienced hikers? And where should they go if they're maybe looking for something a little less intense? Um, North Lake to South Lake is a very popular trail to go on. It, usually people do it like in a five-day uh, time period. As far as just like a day hike, I would recommend going to South Lake. Um, from there you go, it's um, about four or five miles round trip to Long Lake. Um, very picturesque. You know, you don't have to be an athlete to enjoy this area. You can be the armchair mountaineer, so to speak. You can enjoy some of the amazing <laughs> sights this area has to offer from the comfort of your car. With friends and family that we've had that come to visit, they're not interested in going climbing and they're not interested in hiking. You know, that's not that's not their thing. So we'll take them uh, to go see Mount Whitney, even up to the trailhead uh, down in Lone Pine, 60 miles away. Um, you can go into Death Valley, which Dave mentioned the lowest uh, point in the contiguous U.S. at Badwater there. And then also, I know I keep talking about Lion Street at those uh, three lakes, but then also just up there, the drive there is pretty. You get out to the, you know, the lake, you take some pictures, you walk around a little bit, you get back in the car and you go to the next one. So give us a weekend itinerary. Like what would you do if you had a weekend to visit Bishop? Well, I feel like I would definitely have to drive out to Death Valley National Park and see Badwater Basin, the lowest point in the United States. And on the way to or from, you're going to pass Mount Whitney, where you can see clearly from the car, the highest point, you know, in the lower 48 states. It's just a great thing to see. I would stay probably, if it were me, my favorite hotel. There's a lot of hotels in Bishop, California. It's a tourist town. Creekside's my favorite. Um, I would probably start out having some amazing breakfast at one of our great bakeries. Schott's Bakery is incredible. And that's literally a world-famous bakery. No trip to Bishop would be complete without going to Schott's. Great Basin is a local favorite, and that one is definitely one to hit up. So what, what would you suggest I order at, at Shots? Literally anything. They have the largest variety of baked goods made on site that you can imagine. They have a tart with fresh fruit, um, topped with fresh fruit on the top, and that's my favorite. Their pull-away bread is famous. When we have company, that's where we'll take them for breakfast. Right. Oh, that's cool. So that could be one day of the weekend. So what would you do? Like, say, say we did that on Saturday. What would you do on Sunday? We always send people up to the bristlecone pines. Um, they're the oldest known living organisms on Earth. Some of the trees are three to five thousand years old. And on the drive up, which if you're taking your time, takes about an hour, you'll get to see a vista. It's, it's arguably one of the best views in the area. You'll be looking over the town of Bishop with an unobstructed view of the Sierras to the north and south for sometimes maybe 50 miles. It's just a breathtaking drive. And then, of course, you get to see these amazing trees that have been alive longer than anything else on Earth. So, you know, before we wrap things up, what's one piece of advice or maybe hot tip you'd give someone for, you know, someone visiting Bishop for the first time? I would say don't be afraid to talk to the locals. Um, sometimes we shy away from talking to people. But in our community, if you're looking for something to do or a recommendation, just ask somebody. We have people coming into the distillery all the time that said, well, so-and-so told me I should come here. So there's no shortage of friendly, good advice and information here. So don't be afraid to talk to people. But then also, if you're not from town, you're not a local and you come in, locals will strike up a conversation with you, ask you where you're from, what are you going to be doing while you're here, give you a recommendation to where to go or what to see. I would also tell people visiting Bishop for the first time to 
really be prepared for the outdoor elements. Uh, we are the high desert and it is a mountain area. So you can expect cool temps at night and uh, warm temps during the day. And you should dress accordingly and bring some sunscreen. Brittany and David Holman are the owners of the Owens Valley Distilling Company in Bishop. For more on visiting the distillery or to order their bottled spirits online, visit OwensValleyDistillingCompany.com. That's O-W-E-N-S ValleyDistillingCompany.com. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope to see you in the Golden State soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Our producer is Kate Eppelboim. Jessica Marshall is our technical lead. John Godfrey is our editorial director. And the theme song is by Aaron Taos. Additional music by Casey. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And with the holiday season just around the corner, Visit California is here and has you covered. Whether they're wine lovers, thrill seekers, art connoisseurs, or style mavens, we have 14 gift guides brimming with suggestions for California-inspired presents that will wow everyone on your list. You'll find great bargains and opportunities to splurge on your friends and loved ones. Head over to visitcalifornia.com to check it out.